Chapter Sixteen, Part Five of Three Men and a Maid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Three Men and a Maid by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter Sixteen, Part Five. Billy, meanwhile, with Bream trotting docilely at her heels, had reached the garage and started the car. Like all cars which have been spending a considerable time in secluded inaction, it did not start readily. At each application of Billy's foot on the self-starter, it emitted a tinny and reproachful sound, then seemed to go to sleep again. Eventually, however, the engines began to revolve, and the machine moved reluctantly out into the drive. "'The battery must be run down,' said Billy. "'All right,' said Bream. Billy cast a glance of contempt at him out of the corner of her eyes. She hardly knew why she had spoken to him, except that, as all automobilists are aware, the impulse to say rude things about their battery is almost irresistible. To an automobilist, the art of conversation consists in rapping out scathing remarks either about the battery or the oiling system. Billy switched on the headlights and turned the car down the dark drive. She was feeling thoroughly upset. Her idealistic nature had received a painful shock on the discovery of the yellow streak in Bream. To call it a yellow streak was to understate the facts. It was a great belt of saffron, encircling his whole soul. That she, Wilhelmina Bennett, who had gone through the world seeking a Galahad, should finish off her career as the wife of a man who hid under beds, simply because people shot at him with elephant guns, was abhorrent to her. Why, Samuel Marlowe would have perished rather than do such a thing. You might say what you liked about Samuel Marlowe, and, of course, his habit of playing practical jokes put him beyond the pale but nobody could question his courage. Look at the way he had dived overboard that time in the harbour at New York. Billy found herself thinking hard about Samuel Marlowe. There are only a few makes of car in which you can think hard about anything except the actual driving without stalling the engines. And Mr. Bennett's twin-six complex was not one of them. It stopped as if it had been waiting for the signal. The noise of the engine died away, the wheels ceased to revolve, the automobile did everything except lie down. It was a particularly pig-headed car, and right from the start it had been unable to see the sense in this midnight expedition. It seemed now to have the idea that if it just lay low and did nothing, presently it would be taken back to its cosy garage. Billy trod on the self-starter. Nothing happened. "'You'll have to get down and crank her,' she said curtly. "'All right,' said Bream. Well, go on, said Billy, impatiently. Eh? Get out and crank her. Bream emerged for an instant from his trance. All right, he said. The art of cranking a car is one that is not given to all men. Some of our greatest and wisest stand helpless before the task. It is a job towards the consummation of which a noble soul and a fine brain help not at all. A man may have all the other gifts and yet be unable to accomplish a task which the fellow at the garage does with one quiet, quick flick of the wrist, without even bothering to remove his chewing gum. This being so, it was not only unkind, but foolish of Billy to grow impatient as Bream's repeated efforts failed of their object. It was wrong of her to click her tongue, and certainly she ought not to have told Bream that he was not fit to churn butter. But women are an emotional sex and must be forgiven much in moments of mental stress. "'Give it a good sharp twist,' 
she said. All right, said Bream. Here, let me do it, cried Billy. She jumped down and snatched the thingummy from his hand. With bent brows and set teeth, she wrenched it round. The engine gave a faint protesting mutter, like a dog that has been disturbed in its sleep, and was still once more. May I help? It was not Bream who spoke, but a strange voice, a sepulchral voice, the sort of voice someone would have used in one of Edgar Allan Poe's cheerful little tales, if he had been buried alive and were speaking from the family vault. Coming suddenly out of the night, it affected Bream painfully. He uttered a sharp exclamation, and gave a bound, which, if he had been a Russian dancer, would probably have caused the management to raise his salary. He was in no frame of mind to bear up under sudden sepulchral voices. Billy, on the other hand, was pleased. The high-spirited girl was just beginning to fear that she was unequal to the task which she had chided Bream for being unable to perform, and this was mortifying her. "'Oh, would you mind? Thank you so much. The self-starter's gone wrong.' Into the glare of the headlights there stepped a strange figure. Strange, that is to say, in these tame modern times. In the Middle Ages he would have excited no comment at all. Passers-by would simply have said to themselves, "Ah." another of those knights off after the dragons, and would have gone their way with a civil greeting. But in the present age it is always somewhat startling to see a helmeted head pop up in front of your automobile. At any rate, it startled Bream. I'll go further. It gave Bream the shock of a lifetime. He had had shocks already that night, but none to be compared with this. Or perhaps it was that this shock, coming on top of those shocks, affected him more disastrously than it would have done if it had been the first of the series instead of the last. One may express the thing briefly by saying that, as far as Bream was concerned, Sam's unconventional appearance put the lid on it. He did not hesitate. He did not pause to make comments or ask questions. With a single cat-like screech, which took years off the lives of the abruptly wakened birds roosting in the neighbouring trees, he dashed away towards the house, and, reaching his room, locked the door and pushed the bed, the chest of drawers, two chairs, the towel-stand, and three pairs of boots against it. Only then did he feel comparatively safe. Out on the drive Billy was staring at the man in armour, who had now, with a masterful wrench, which informed the car right away that he would stand no nonsense, set the engine going again. "'Why, why,' she stammered, "'why are you wearing that thing on your head?' "'Because I can't get it off.' Hollow as the voice was, Billy recognized it. Mr. Marlowe! she exclaimed. Get in, said Sam. He'd seated himself at the steering wheel. Where can I take you? Go away, said Billy. Get in. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to you. Get in. I won't. Sam bent over the side of the car, put his hands under her arms, lifted her like a kitten, and deposited her on the seat beside him. Then, throwing in the clutch, he drove at an ever-increasing speed down the drive and out into the silent road. Strange creatures of the night came and went in the glow of the headlights. End of chapter 16, part 5 Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org